reminds us that this world is not as God designed it to be, but it will be one day. All right, so God has a plan, and God is unfolding that plan. And uh, at the conclusion of God's renovation of what sin has destroyed, uh, there will be a world without sin and without sorrow, without death, without suffering. And certainly we look forward to that day. So if you have a Bible, let's go to uh, Romans chapter 12. Um, We are in this series on winning your war, and we've been talking about spiritual warfare. We've took a couple of Sundays to paint a broad picture of what that looks like, and now we're kind of narrowing down on how this affects us on a day-in and day-out basis, which is really where I want to go with this entire series. Um, So last week we talked about identity theft. And one of the things that Satan wants to steal from you is your true God-given identity. I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, we were oftentimes identified not by our name necessarily, but by the group of people that you ran with, right? So you, whoever you hung out with, it might be, oh, these are the jocks, uh, these are the nerds, uh, these are the brainiacs, these are the, the band kids, these are the religious ones, don't get around them, they're weird, uh, these are the partiers, uh, whatever, you know, these are the smokers. In my high school, there was the actual smoking pit uh, that was outside one of the buildings where if you smoked, you could go there. It was free territory to smoke. You smoke anywhere else in high school, but you could smoke there. So if you went there, you were a smoker. Uh, so these labels, you know, in, in high school, sometimes they stick, and sometimes they stick and last a long time. And uh, one of the reasons I, I, I come to real, that realization is that at my 20-year reunion, class reunion, uh, every time I met somebody, you know, one of the guys I went to school with, which I'd lived out of state for many, many years and had not been around a lot of the people that I graduated with, and I, I graduated in a very large class. There was over 700 of us. And uh, so the, the people, though, that I went to junior high, high school with that I knew well, inevitably, what does every man say when he meets somebody he hasn't seen in a long time? Hey, how you doing? What are you, what are you doing for a living now? All right, so... Um, I was labeled as one of the partiers in high school. That was my thing. And so all of a sudden I said, well, I'm a pastor. And that was the end of the discussion. They didn't know what to say. Like, oh, oh, okay, let me move on. Uh, so it was, just like, it was just like that. It was a, um, a conversation killer because I, I had moved my label from being a partier to being that of a pastor. And we often take these labels and we adopt them as our identity. Now, remember the word identity in, uh, in you know, our vernacular now, people speak of self-image, self-esteem, self-love. You're speaking of how you see yourself. That's your, kind of your identity. And some of the labels that we have don't die easily that formulate our identity. Sometimes somebody says, well, how so-and-so? Well, they're a divorcee now, or or they're an addict, or um, they're the black sheep of the family, or they're a failure, they're a loser, they're they're, um, weak, they're unsuccessful. And so you, you carry this label that seeps into and begins to formulate your self-concept, your identity, and though some labels may not be that dramatic or negative, they do begin to define our lives. For example, if you have been told all of your life growing up that you were beautiful, and so, you know, you, 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 that became a part of your identity. Well, but what happens if your beauty fades? What happens if there's an accident that takes away your beauty or aging begins to catch up and it takes away your beauty. So it, it begins to infringe upon your identity, upon your self-image, upon uh, your self-esteem, your self-love. Or what if you, as a young lady, grew up and all your life your dad called you a princess? You came to believe that you were actually a princess. But what if your husband didn't see you that way, and now all of a sudden he's the bad guy, right? Because you're no longer the princess. Uh, He sees you differently and speaks to you differently. Or people who play sports for a living, who are professional athletes, oftentimes their identity has been built around that all of their lives. And then when they are forced out of their 
their, their particular field of expertise, now they have lost their identity. They don't know who they are. There's no meaning. There's no purpose in their life any longer. This can happen particularly with men when they retire because our identity is so built around what we do and where we work. And when retirement comes or there's, you know, you're forced out of the workforce, now all of a sudden it's like, I have no meaning. I have no purpose. I don't, I don't see myself the way I used to. So identity is, is a very forceful uh, factor in our lives, and it's one of the reasons why Satan wants to attack it. Our labels don't die easy, but here's the question. The question is, who is it that has the right to label you? Who has the right to label you? Your friends, your family, uh, the world, other people? The fact of the matter is, all of us are sitting here with clothing on, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, but most of us, if you look inside your clothing, there is a tag and there is a label, right? And so some of it, you know, you might be, um, your tag says Gap or Guess or American Eagle or Nike, uh, uh, Adidas or whatever it might be. Who is it that determines what goes on that tag, that label? The maker does. Whoever made that article of clothing puts their label upon that tag. They make that determination. I'm here, simply here to say that the only person who has a right to, uh, to label you, to give you an identity, is your maker, who is God the Heavenly Father. And so as we studied last week, we saw that God created us in his image that we might mirror back, we might reflect God to the world around us, but Satan came along because he always counterfeits what God does, and he got Adam and Eve to buy into an alternative identity and image, and therefore Jesus came into the world in order to bring us back to the original identity that God has for us. So the labels that God puts on you as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ and he is in you because of a relationship with him, the labels that God puts upon you is not sinner anymore. Because when we think about sinner, the Satan comes along and says, you're just nothing but a dirty, vile, worthless sinner. No, that's not what the label God puts on you. The label God puts on you is saint, right? You are saint. You are sanctified by God. You are set apart for him and by him. He uses words like chosen and cleansed and adopted and forgiven and free and sealed and strong. These are the labels that God has put on your life. But remember, whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. And so Satan also wants to label you because, remember, uh, both God and Satan are seeking to define you. So Satan comes along and says, oh, no, 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 those aren't your labels. Your labels are this. Remember what his tell sign, his, his, you know, like in a poker game, his tell sign is you. You're thinking your mind into terms of you. You are worthless. You are a failure. You are hopeless. You are disgusting. You are weak. You are unloved. Those are the labels that he wants you to carry around. Why is this so important? I'll tell you why it's so important, because whatever's rolling around inside of your mind, when you think about your identity, your self-image, your self-esteem, your self-love, whatever you want to call it, whatever is rolling around in your mind dominates your thought processes, and your life always moves in the direction of your most dominant thinking. If I only see myself as a failure and worthless, guess what I will live out? I will live a life as a failure and feeling worthless all of my life. And that will wreck you over and over and over again because Satan wants you to carry that identity, those labels, and God comes along and says, no, 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 no. Through your relationship with Jesus Christ, I have removed those labels and I've placed my own labels upon you, my own identity upon you because I have chosen you, I've adopted you, forgiven you, sealed you, and all the labels that God has put on us as followers of Jesus Christ. Why does God want us to rest in those labels? Because God God wants what is best for us. And would we all agree that God's best is not found in relationships that don't work, marriages that don't last, fears that control us, loneliness that haunts us, addictions that imprison us, jobs that bore us, debt and consumes us, and guilt and, and depression that seems to um, overwhelm us, and futures that discourage us? Those are not, those are not God's best. But those, those are the things that I will live out if I'm living in the identity that Satan has for me. 
I'll never rise above that. I know people who are so extremely talented and gifted, but because in their mind the label is, well, I can't do it, and I'm a failure, and, and I, you know, I have limitations. They, just, they live in this self-contained box that they cannot get themselves out of, and they could be soaring so much higher in their life, but they stay contained in that box because they're relying upon the labels that Satan has brought across their mind over and over and over and over again. I want us to get free from that. Amen? You want to be free from that? So what what helps us to to experience, remember, we're trying to take the victory of Jesus, walk in that victory so that we can walk in the freedom that Christ has come to engage us in. So Romans chapter 12, beginning verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Now the therefore is... Referring to therefore, right? What's, what came before this verse? Well, Romans chapters 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul, in a very meticulous way, as though he were a lawyer in a court case, began to show us how our, our um, image was so damaged, and we were, we were sinners who could not set ourselves free, and we were in bondage and enslaved to sin and to Satan and his kingdom and his thought processes and culture and all these things, but... God, rather than leaving us in that state of being, he sent Jesus into the world in order for us to have relationship with him by grace through faith in Christ alone and thus experience the newness of Christ and his life in us, living itself through us. Paul says, in light of all that God has done out of mercy to offer, your, to, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if you're going to live out your God-given identity, it always begins in the same place. It always begins where you began when you stepped into a relationship with Christ. It begins with a place of absolute surrender. You have to come to the point in your life that you're surrendering everything over to the Lord, no strings attached. All I am, Lord, all I have, all I could ever be is is I'm giving it over to you. Not with any strings attached, not with any conditions that I'm putting upon you. I'm just giving absolute surrender to you. Because I really, really, really want to do God's will. And Paul says if we want God's best, that it is found where? In his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I hear people all the time say, and I've said it myself, man, I just want to do God's will when in reality we really didn't. Right? When it comes to God's will, um, oftentimes we want to... um, we want to negotiate God's will. We want to bargain about God's will. And one of the reasons why I know that it's not always our heart's intent and desire to absolutely surrender everything over to God's will is because we couldn't even do that with our parents. All right, growing up, your parents had a will for you, right? They had desires, and you were constantly what? You were constantly challenging the system, you were constantly challenging the borders. You know, this past week, I had the opportunity, uh, Marlon and I, I had our grandson, Cooper, and Cooper's almost four years old, just shy of being four years old, and so I had him for Monday through Wednesday by myself, and so I'm exhausted. Uh, yeah, I took him to the zoo and did all these things, trying to keep him occupied, so Thursday, Marlon had him, Friday, we had him together, and so we could tell, like, by Friday morning that things aren't going to go well. Like, his will was constantly uh, challenging us. And no matter what you told him, it was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And he would just do the exact opposite. By 11 o'clock, he had already had four major meltdowns. And one of those meltdowns happened on the front porch, which got him set in timeout. And he's screaming and he's crying. And, and whenever he, you know, he, he, he doesn't want to, to, to do what you need him to do or whatever, he's like, mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy. So as he's screaming, mommy, daddy, mommy, daddy, here comes a police officer with his Window rolled down, rolling by our house, and he's screaming and crying, Mommy, Dad. Well, obviously, we're not Mommy, Daddy. So the officer kind of looks, and he goes on around the block, comes back around, and see if he's... Yeah, what? So this is kind of what we do with God. Is it not? 
Have you ever had a temper tantrum with God over his will, over his desire, because we thought we knew better and we thought we, we could, you know, bargain, negotiate our way, you know, out of his will rather than absolutely surrendering? I mean, God's will for you is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive him as your personal Savior. That's his will for all humanity. But does all humanity accept that, surrender to God's will, and to receive Jesus in their life? Well, absolutely not. And so oftentimes, even we as followers of Christ, even knowing that God really wants his best for us, sometimes when his will challenges our will and our desires, we want to go with our will and our desire, and so we battle God on this. The average Christian, the average Christian has probably very little power, no sense of God's presence, very few answer to prayer, no sense of peace, and no sense of joy, simply because we cannot bring ourselves to this place of fully surrendering to Him. Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, whose will be done? God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is God's will perfect in heaven? Absolutely. Is it going to be perfect on earth? Absolutely. Is it going to be perfect in your life? Absolutely. But do we absolutely believe that? No. We challenge it. We, we fight against it at times. And so the result is we forfeit the things that God wants us to experience, which is the raw power of the Holy Spirit flowing through us and a sense of God's presence even when everything around us is falling apart and supernatural power and answer to our prayers and the peace and the joy that God can bring regardless of what we're going through in our lives. And it comes to the point where we have to say, God, you know what, I'm all in. You don't have God's best if we keep thinking the wrong way. God says the reason my ways are not your ways is because your thoughts are not lining up with mine. But notice, if I really want to be interested in God's thoughts, I, will, I, I really won't want to be interested in God's thoughts on something unless I'm really interested in doing his will. Let's put it that way. Like In my heart, if I, if I really want to do what I want to do, regardless of what God says, then I'm really not going to be interested in his thoughts on the matter. But notice what Paul says. He says we are to test and approve what God's will is. The idea here is to, to completely experience something, seeing his ways as good and pleasing and perfect. Because everything that God has for you, whether it be in your marriage, in your job, in your future, in your present, I mean, what, everything that God has for you, he really does want his best. But his best may not look the same like the best to us in that given moment and time. The song that Carissa just sang, the very last one is, I mean, talking about sometimes God, you know, we draw closer to the Lord when we are finding ourselves in the valleys and we're shedding tears and we're asking questions and we're wrestling with issues. And these are not things we would want for ourselves. And these are not things we consider best for us, but it's in those wrestling moments that we draw closer to the heart of God than we would otherwise. And so when we are under the most tension and distant in our relationship with God, it's kind of when we're in this moment of defilement, in this moment of rebellion. It's the same way with my kids growing up. You know, when, when we, were the, we were really close, you know, I mean, we're all walking, you know, kind of in the same direction, on the same path. But what happens when your kids get a little rebellious and they, uh, you know, they start defying you as a parent. And then all of a sudden there's, there's this creation of distance in the relationship because you're not getting along. So God begins this identity as we surrender to him. And so the purpose of the surrender is that I might begin to develop the mind of Christ, the character of Christ, to live the life of Jesus. And it continues through a spiritual process. He says the process is this. It's a negative and a positive. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That's the, that's the negative side of this. The Bible teaches us, and we've studied, is that we have an enemy who will fight against you, against me. And Jesus says he only comes for one of three reasons. He comes to either steal, kill, or destroy. That's it. That's his only agenda for you. 
It's to steal, kill, and destroy. If he can destroy your marriage, he'll do everything in his power to do that. If he can destroy your body, he'll do everything in his power to do that. If he can get you to take the bait, the Bible says in the book of James that when we take the bait, that sin gets is all of a sudden now it is conceived within us, and as that sin lives itself out, something dies. Your conscience can begin to die. It begins to get seared and hardened. Your heart can begin to die and become hardened and calloused. Relationships can die. You know, you're, it's just a, a given that this is what he desires for us. It's his goal. His place of operation, he says, is where? In the world. Now, the word world there is the Greek word cosmos. is not speaking of the physical planet we are on, but he's talking about the, the spiritual um, system that is behind all that is happening. Remember, everything that is in the invisible spiritual realm is being played out here in the visible physical realm. And so what Satan does is he set up this system in this world we call a world system that's designed. It is designed to pull your heart away from God at all costs. Now, here's the bad news. The bad news is that we are born into this system. Ephesians 2 says that we're born into Satan's kingdom, and so we are born into this system. It's all we've ever known growing up, and it's not until I get transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son that I all of a sudden understand there is a contrast. There are two different cultures that are warring against each other because as long as I was over here in darkness, I was blind to the fact that there was something else over here. But once God got me over here, now my eyes are wide open to what is happening over here and how it is impacting my life on a day in and day out basis. So when you think about um, this world system, uh, you can define the world system. First John chapter 2 defines it this way. It is the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what this system is built around. I mean, when you gave your life to Christ, some very significant things happened to you. Your sins were immediately forgiven, right? Past, present, and future, all your sins. That Jesus took his righteousness and imputed it. He credited it to your account. So your sin debt to God says paid in full. You're righteous in Christ in Jesus, he in you. Therefore, when God looks upon you, he never sees a dirty, defiled sinner. He sees a saint of God who's been chosen by God, called out of darkness into light, and therefore now you're in Christ and he is in you, and that is a covenant relationship that cannot be broken unless God himself breaks it. So you're eternally secure. And you receive this imputed righteousness. You are adopted into God's family. You're taking out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The Holy Spirit of God, God himself, indwells you and empowers you beyond your human limitations. And you became a son or daughter of the living God solely by the grace of Jesus Christ as provided through his cross and resurrection. So every believer, though, has the capacity of sin, right? We, we haven't lost that capacity or that ability. And these are the three avenues through which Satan's going to travel. Either the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. And so there are a lot of categories that could fall under those. I'll just spell out a few of them. The word flesh speaks of not your fleshly body, but the old thought patterns, the mindset that you had in order to get your needs met apart from God. And so this is kind of what's been set up. It's kind of ruts pattern. It's called what I call the grid system in your brain, your thought patterns. And so we'll talk about this next week. And sometimes often, when, like, for example, when we get hurt by people or some event, we, we set up thought patterns that are called um, inner vows. And those inner vows are statements that we make that we hold on to, that we love and we cherish like a family heirloom. And we will even exercise our, our thought processes over in our um, inner vows even over the word of God until we are, uh, become aware of them and what they are and how they're damaging us. And so these inner vows might say, for example, let's say you got hurt by somebody uh, you were dating or maybe you were engaged. They cut off the engagement and you thought to yourself, you know what? I will never let anyone hurt me like that again. That inner vow has been constructed in your thought processes and your thought process it's going to affect the way you live. It's going to affect the way you th see things, approach things, live your life, because you're not ever going to be hurt that way again. And so the lust of the flesh is what we are passionate about, what we feel, right? Everybody wants to feel loved. 
Everybody wants to feel accepted. Everybody wants to feel worthy or important. As I've been reading about, you know, human trafficking, and, you know, oftentimes we think about when people are human trafficked, that people, you know, drive by in a van, open up a door, drag them inside, and take off. But oftentimes people, especially girls, teenagers, are trafficked because their boyfriends get them into it. And so they have a boyfriend who's very shady in character, and every article that I read by these young ladies who, who have escaped the human trafficking simply said this, the reason why I started running with this guy is because I just wanted to feel loved. I just wanted to feel like I was worthwhile. You want to know why most girls don't feel loved or worthwhile? Because they didn't get it from their father. If a dad doesn't help his daughter feel loved and worthwhile, I guarantee you it's just a matter of time until she goes out and she tries to find it from some other guy. Now, I'm not saying if you make your daughter feel loved and worthwhile that she's not going to go off on the deep end. There's no guarantees in life. But I can assure you, when you look at our society and how much fatherless homes there are, in some areas it's 70%, in other areas it's 60%, 50%, depending on your Caucasian and when you've got a lot of fatherless homes and you've got a lot of young girls who are out there trying to find love in all the wrong places, they find the wrong places because these guys know how to seek them out and get them involved in something they really shouldn't be involved in or wanted to be involved in. The lust of the eyes is the passion to have, and the pride of life is the passion to be. So uh, put them together. You have this supercharged desires for pleasure, possessions, and positions that promise you significance, security, and happiness in life. This is Satan's promise. This is the lure that he uses to bait us with in order to, to reel us in so that we start building our lives around the things that really are not significant, that really do not provide us with security, though we think they do, and are not going to provide us what we want in life. But in fact, once he ensnares you in his trap of deception, he has ensnared you for one of three reasons, to kill, to steal, or to destroy. Please understand that. And not only does he do that individually, he does it with societies. So think about the lust of the flesh. How much the flesh drives our lives. Our society right now is probably the most sexually driven society since the inception of our country. Sex sells. You've heard that. Even on Netflix, I hear there's a movie that's come out called Cuties. 11-year-old girls who are twerking their way to the top. That's absolutely disgusting. All right, Human trafficking alone. Do you know that 2,000 children every single day in the United States are trafficked into sex slave market? 800,000 kids a year worldwide. It is a $98 billion industry. Why? Because there is a market out there wanting it. That's how Satan steals and kills and destroys or the lust of the eyes, you know, it's not, nothing wrong with owning a home or a car or having money in the bank, but it's the passion to possess more and more, bigger and bigger, in an attempt to make me feel better about myself, an attempt to uh, provide with some sign of, sign, uh, kind of worth, sense of worth, or impress people around me, or some sense of security. And again, the Bible talks about saving. There's nothing wrong with saving. There's nothing wrong with having things unless things have you, um, because what happens when it gets out of control is it produces workaholics and it produces shopaholics and it accounts for a massive personal debt and financial pressure in the majority of many people's lives. And these are all indicators that our hearts have been seduced by another lover called money and the pride of life. People will cheat, they'll lie, they'll backstab. They will do anything they can to gain positions of influence, power, and popularity. It's called politics. The culture's promised us all kinds of things that it cannot deliver. I mean, think about our society. We've had a, you know, politics in our country from its inception, and look at the mess that we're in. If politics could solve our issues and problems, they would have been solved a long time ago. We are in a mess because we're fighting the wrong war. Satan is the one who has established the culture that drives all of these things, and until we wise up and begin seeing things from a different perspective, nothing will ever change. 
Uh, I, I know this is going to be real unpopular. Um, I'm, by the time I'm done, I'll probably offend everybody. But, you know, we, we have this thing now where everybody's wanting money for what happened many years ago in the slavery. And I know that slavery was horrible. It was terrible. It should have never happened. Um, God hates it. Uh, and certainly um, racism is, is not of the, of the word of God. It is not God-given or, in, you know, um, endorsed in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, if you, if you want reciprocity for something and say, well, if you give me this X number of dollars for what my great-great-great-grandparents may have done or not done, is that really going to change anything? See, we've always decided as a country, if we just throw enough money at something, it'll solve the issue. It won't because you have not touched the human heart. Until that changes, nothing changes. I don't care how much money you throw at it. Now, granted, there are things that we need to do to make our country better and people's lives better. I mean, we have the, you know, the slogan, Black Lives Matters, and I think that everybody would agree, Black Lives Matters, I think it's the wrong, the wrong slogan. I think the slogan is, how do we make black lives better? That, that causes you to rise up and say, okay, well, what are the problems? What are some solutions to the problems rather than just throwing a slogan out there that nobody knows what to do with? Let's look at the issue and the issues that need to be addressed. And so again, we have to go back to the Word of God and stop conforming to the, the, the mind. It, it means to be put your mind in a mold. Let's not allow our minds to be shaped by the culture driven by Satan. Let our minds be shaped by the culture called the kingdom of God. And then we'll address the issues as the church of Jesus Christ. See, the church early on used to address the issue of poverty. I mean, churches were very much into helping the poor and very much into helping, you know, give people a leg up. And then over time, our, our churches have made a transition. And it's not that we don't make attempts to that. And there are many churches who do many wonderful things, even this church. But I'm simply saying is that sometimes I think God said to us in this year, this particular year, uh, let's stop. And let's just slow down and let's look at what we're really doing. Are we really doing what we should be doing to help the world around us? The positive side is, he says, be transformed by the renewing your mind. You've heard it said, we are what we eat. Try a steady diet every day of fast food. And by the end of the year, you're going to have very poor health because you're eating something that's a high Steady uh, high calories, high fat, low in nutrition. And uh, so this, what is true physically is also true spiritually. If we fill our minds with the world's system and the world's culture, um, it's going to be very, very difficult to live the life that God wants us to live in the position that he's placed us in. So let me give you an example. And uh, I know I've got to kind of fly through this. Go to the book of Daniel in chapter 1. And this is in the Old Testament, because Daniel is an example of what it means to live out your identity. How do you live out your identity? You know, we have this battle that's going on inside of our minds. We realize that we have these old ways of thoughts and thinkings and labels and identities that we have going on in our minds. And God comes over here and says, no, 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 that's not right. This is what the labels I want. This is the identity I've given you. And this is the, what I want to shape your mind because it's going to shape your, your thoughts. And your, you, know, your thought, your, you live out what you think. Your life is moving in the direction of your most dominant thinking. So how do we, how do we immerse ourselves in a culture that is diametrically opposed to uh, the kingdom's culture and still be able, rather than becoming like the culture uh, uh, that we're immersed in, that we, be, we become transformers of that culture. You know, it's like the Bible says, we're in the world, but we don't want to be like the world. How can I transform the world in which I find myself in as a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, Daniel is a prime example of how this happens. Uh, when you look at Daniel chapter 1, in the very last verse, it says, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And so Daniel's taken into captivity in Babylon. And what he's saying here is this. Uh, King Cyrus comes much later. King Nebuchadnezzar is there when he first arrives. What he's saying is this. Daniel had a 70-year run in Babylon. And during that time, literally transformed the culture in which he found himself in, which was vastly pagan, 
And not only that, some of the rulers end up coming and giving their life to the God of Yahweh as a result of Daniel's testimony in their midst. How did he do that? How do you do that? Now, if you're looking for instant results, probably not going to happen. But this is something that over time, God did through Daniel. So the Babylonians were the most powerful empire in the world, headed up by a very powerful king named Nebuchadnezzar uh, back in 605 BC. And so he's moving across uh, the continent. He's conquering one kingdom after another. And so he, uh, I mean, th this Babylon was the home of mystery religions. They had magicians and sorcerers and they were arrogant. They had no morals. They had no values. Um, I mean, they wouldn't make Las Vegas look like a Sunday school class. They, they had idols everywhere. As warriors, they were ruthless. They were brutal. I mean, this was an extremely, extremely dark, pagan kingdom. And God's people are living in Judah. And Jerusalem is the capital. And God gave warning to his people, listen, and he did it through the prophets. You keep, you're turning your hearts away from me. You're taking up idols. You're worshiping false gods. Remember the big 10 that God gave them? Uh, the third of the big 10, you shall have no other gods before me. This wasn't a suggestion. This was a command. So it's now their will versus God's will. And they decided to go with their will. And they took on idols, and they started worshiping foreign gods. And God says, but I love you. I want you to draw back to me. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will do everything for you. And I will give you my best. But their hearts just kept keep moving away. Who do you think was behind the scenes helping their hearts to move away from God? Well, it's revealed in the New Testament. It's Satan, right? Steal, kill, and destroy. Move your heart away from the Lord. Stop trusting in him. Stop relying on him. Battle with his will. And so as a result, God finally says, okay, enough is enough, and sent them off into captivity, which was going to last for 70 years. Now, look in Daniel 1.1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. <laughs> now, who caused the bad guys to win the battle. God did. Notice very closely what it says. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim and his people into the hands of the Babylonians. See, God had the power and the ability to tear down the Babylonians without them having laying a hand on his own people. But now he's not there. He's not trying to pay them back. He's trying to bring them back. And one of the ways that God does that is through judgment, or what we call in the New Testament, God's discipline. God wanted their hearts, so he channeled his best, so he could channel his best in their lives. Because listen, God will not bless what sin is competing with, with him for. All right? If sin's competing in your life with God, he ain't gonna, he's not going to bless that. And so this comes back to the, the issue of surrender. I don't want to compete with God's will. I want God's perfect, good, pleasing, and perfect will in my life, and therefore I must surrender. So they refuse to surrender, so God brings in an enemy, and he pulls them out of their homeland and puts them into captivity. I'm simply here to say this. And what the Scripture is saying to us is that, listen, you can only push God so far. And as a country, we've pushed him as far as we can. We've pushed him out of our schools. We've pushed him out of everything that we possibly can. Now they're wanting even to take God's name out of the Pledge of Allegiance and all the other things. We're trying to push him away, push him away, and push him away. And uh, we push God so far, whether as a nation or individually, God's going to push back because he's not going to compete with what you're putting as a competition in front of him. And listen... If God is your problem, he's your solution. God's our problem. Because he's simply giving us over to in order to get our attention to draw us back. And so here's what King Nebuchadnezzar knew. He was a very smart man in that. He says, okay, 
when we conquer kingdoms, in order to gain communication and control over the kingdoms we're conquering, uh, we want to get the youngest and the brightest, and we're going to bring them into Babylon, and we are going to retrain them. We're going to retrain the way they think, the way they approach things, because we want to send them back out into their homelands to make sure that the people follow the structure of Babylon. This is exactly what Satan is doing in our world, is that he's like, okay, I'm behind the scenes. All right, you know, I want to conquer the the kingdom as much as I can. Uh, You know, he can't, we're eternally secure, but he he can nullify our lives. He can nullify us from walking in the victory of Jesus on a day in and day out basis. And so he said, you know what, I'm going to take the culture around them and I'm going to get them to to conform themselves to the culture of the kingdom of Satan rather than the kingdom of God, and therefore I will nullify their effectiveness in the kingdom, and so I will make them like, you know, uh, rather than being thermostats setting the temperature, they're going to be thermometers and reflect the temperature, which is why most people, most Christians, their lives reflect the world around them rather than are different to where they can transform the world around them. This is the difference between Daniel and and oftentimes our lives. So if we're going to live out God's identity, here's the lessons from the life of Daniel. Your identity is rooted in Christ, but is challenged by a hostile environment. A hostile environment. God took Daniel out of his comfortable culture and put him in a godless environment with a very different language, a different literature, and a different lifestyle. Now, we were born into this culture of Satan's kingdom. We got transferred into God's kingdom. Now we got to say, okay, how do I take God's kingdom's culture and values and, and rather than allowing this culture to impact me, me impacting that culture? This is where Daniel finds himself. And so, um, so the king questions him. He says, you'll notice in verse 18, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. And so how did Daniel demonstrate God's best in this environment? He did it because it was based upon his convictions and his courage. So let me rapidly go through this. There is the seduction of your soul. As you read chapter 1, the first thing that, that Nebuchadnezzar did when he brought these, you know, um, as we know them, their names as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, but they were going to change their names, they're given, uh, um, Babylonian names. It says that when they came, verse 4, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well well-formed, quick to understand, qualified to serve the king's palace. He said, teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So what did they do? First of all, they wanted to change their thinking, their thought processes, right? They're going to learn a new language and study new literature, Right? This is what missionaries do when they go on the mission field. Right? You study the culture, you study the language, because you want to immerse yourself into that culture. So this is what Nebuchadnezzar knew. If I can get them to think like a Babylonian, when I send them back home, they're going to take that, those thought processes and infiltrate them into the lives of the people in Judah. Right? So um, literature change. Fill their minds with Babylonian philosophy, religion, astrology. His goal is to educate them away from the roots of their previous belief system and traditional values. Then he says, I'm going to change their lifestyle. Their food came from the king's table. Well, remember, these guys are Jewish. They, They adhere to strict kosher laws. So now they're asking for that violation. And so, um... He's changing their physical diet. He's wanting to change their physical diet as well as their mental diet in order to change their lifestyle, and he's going to change their worship, their allegiance. They give them Babylonian names. For example, Daniel means God is my judge. It was changed to Belshazzar, which means my, that Baal protects, protects my life. Whole different change. Whole different way of viewing yourself. 
as Daniel and <clears throat> Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah are given name changes. So what does all this have to do with us? Well, it's about the transformation of your life and our souls. <clears throat> God, he's going to use these four Hebrew young men to prepare for the next generation to change the world. And so um, these guys, I mean, they're 15, 16 years old. They're in this wicked, immoral culture, and, uh, but yet we see something in them. It says in verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Where did Daniel get these, this courage, these convictions? From his parents. He's a teenager. This all had been instilled in him before he ended up in Babylon. Why? Because God has prepared them through this, their parents for this moment in time. <clears throat> I just want to say something to fathers. If you as a father fail to lead your home spiritually, Satan will step in and take up the gap. You'll find that in the book of Genesis. You want to know what your kids are ultimately going to do? What you do. You can read all the books on parenting techniques you want to. When you get up in the morning and look in the mirror for the next 20 minutes, your children are probably going to start reflecting at some point in their life what you do. So if you want them to live a life of courage, a life of conviction, a life that is um, extending the values of the kingdom of God, they have got to see it in your life. Right? If you ask my children, is your dad the same at home as he is at church? Ask them, because they will tell you, yes, I want to make sure they weren't experiencing a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde, me one way at church, but something totally different at home. I want them to reflect. Now, it doesn't mean they're ultimately going to walk in that, but at least you're giving them the chance. God also positions godly people in places of influence. And so God has positioned you. He's positioned you in neighborhoods, as coaches on teams, in workplaces to be people of influence. Listen, we make a difference in the world by being different from the world, not being like the world. And thirdly, God wants to prosper those who follow in his ways over the ways of the world. <clears throat> Again, Daniel and his friends, I mean, they, they, they literally transformed at one point the, the entire Babylonian kingdom. How do you do that? Four young men. <laughs> it's a supernatural work of God. But God strategically put them to be influencers. So they're living out their identity as they find it in their heavenly father. Secondly, your identity is rooted in God's promises and character, but is challenged by compromise and conformity to the world. <clears throat> you see, truth is, is challenged all the time. So convictions are refusing to compromise in spite of the cost. Is it going to cost Daniel something to be a man of conviction? He's going to end up in a lion's den because of it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is going to end up in a fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to the king and what he desired and thus usurping their convictions. And so the way we find conviction is through the word of God. Courage is refusing to conform even when we are afraid. And so obviously Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're human beings. Obviously they, they're, they're afraid, they're fearful at times. <clears throat> So let's draw this back to our society. It's what I call, um, let's, back in 1973, I read what's called the Human, Humanistic Manifesto II <clears throat> that laid out their entire agenda. And for sake of time, because I know I'm out of time, Every single piece of their agenda, and if you're interested in it, I'll text it to you, is now being fulfilled. Every single step. From <clears throat> values clarification, no truth, um, whatever's right for you is right for you, what's right for others, 
gender confusion, you name it. It's all being fulfilled in our country. I'm simply wanting to challenge us as a church to gear up and to rise up and to put on the armor of God in face of what is coming down the way. Stop putting your hope in a presidential election. I don't know which way it's going to go. I'm not here to say one way or the other who you should vote for. I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus. I think that the answer to our problems are found in the gospel, as I stated from the very beginning. But I wonder after COVID is over, how many soldiers are going to be standing? How many people have gotten so used to being at home in their pajamas, watching online, that you're just going to stay there? And you're going to be comfortable there, and you're not going to mount up, and you're not going to suit up, and you're not going to get in the game anymore. Listen, there's a lot on the line here. This may be very well God's final invitation to the world. And if we're not prepared and we're not ready, as, the, as followers of Jesus, we will miss the greatest opportunity that we have ever had to see the world changed. Thirdly, your identity is lived out in a no-yes proposition. What is it that you need to say no to that keeps squeezing you into the world's mold? What do you need to give up? I mean, something maybe has, you just keep pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down, and yet the Spirit just keeps saying, you know what, you need to deal with this, you need to deal with this, you need to deal with this, and we'll talk about this next week, but what is that squeezing you into its mold? And so you say no to that, and you say yes to what I call 15 to 20 minutes of daily soap time with God, right? And so you probably bathed before you came, maybe you used soap, maybe you used body wash, but it's a time of saying, you know what, I'm going to, I want God to transform my mind and prepare me for the moment in time in which we find ourselves. And so I take the scripture, I read it, I observe it, I apply it because nothing happens till application happens. And I pray it back to the Lord and allow God to launch me out into what it is he wants me to do as a result of what I'm reading so that I begin to transform my mind and I begin to remove the labels of the evil one and I replace it with the labels of the spirit of God so that I walk in the spirit rather than in the flesh, so that we are geared up and we are ready for battle, which is coming, and the battle is going to be waging against the church of Jesus Christ. But if we are suited up for the battle, it doesn't matter how bad the battle may become, we can win the war because we are soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're not ready and we're not properly suited up, will fall as casualties on the war, on the, on the battlefield. This has happened in the past. It certainly could happen in the future. And so now that we've had this year of COVID, of rest, reflection, and restoration, let's mount up, let's get ready, because the battle is real, and it's right in front of us. We are living in it every single day. But God wants to make a difference, and you and I were it. Let's pray.